On the same day in 2006, James Millen released two debut albums. One, a Kiwi cult classic, an indie pop portrait of his early 20s. And the other, a more experimental introduction to the act that would go on to define his career. I'm James Milne. Lawrence Rabia is my professional pseudonym, and I used to front a band called The Reduction Agents. Welcome to Highlighter Records. I'm Grant Walter, stacking the shelves with albums and artists that deserve to be bigger. By the time the public got to know the reduction agents, James had moved on under the pseudonym Lawrence Arabia. But when you send your child out into the world, they take on a life of their own. And unbeknownst to James, after a few years in Europe, a new crop of fans had discovered his old band back home. It all starts with a collection of songs from a young man leaving his home of Christchurch, New Zealand, in search of bigger things. The predominant culture was really rugby-focused. It wasn't the place that I felt comfortable. At the time, at least, it was a very you know, masculine, binge-drinking culture that I didn't, didn't really enjoy, so I felt like a, an outsider there. For me, the most exciting thing about moving to Auckland was finding a sense of community, people who were also effeminate and uh, twee and, and dressed up weirdly and, and didn't f- fear for their lives when they went out on a Friday night. That was really exciting. <laughs> Kind of a beautiful time, actually. That was 2002, and while the New Zealand music industry was a healthy community, as a young musician in a new town, James still hadn't found his sound. I kept on writing music. I was just sort of on the dole, being a young probably slightly depressed bohemian <laughs> just trying to find my way in the world so I was, I was definitely writing lots of songs this would have been you know 2002 when I moved to Auckland and when I was pursuing my adult life whatever that was going to end up being and a lot of those songs uh, I was writing in 2002 were the songs that ended up being on the on the reduction agents record kind of that classic case of a of those songs being a body of work that I'd accumulated over quite a few years when I found a certain style of songwriting, there was, you know, this first flush of excitement in, in songwriting that I found. And after a little while, he had to get creative to get his ideas down. At the time, technology wasn't as good as as now, so I had I had a dictaphone to to note things down. There was a flat that I used to stay at in, in Mount Albert, where my friends were living, and they had some recording equipment there, and I'd sometimes you know borrow a digital eight track and uh record some stuff and so I, I, there was a song called you beautiful militant which i recorded on that digital eight track that was sort of you know a piece of music that i was excited about and it, it gave me some confidence that i was you know maybe talented enough to actually do it as a as a job and obviously like the technology was a lot less uh available at the time so it was kind of a big deal you know borrowing these pieces of equipment on you're getting friends that you know were in the industry to help me out a little bit so in that sense it was it was definitely a big step from just from just playing my guitar in the 
in in my in the bedroom in my flat. But I, I recorded this three track EP called uh, Tales. It was something like Tales of Woe, Stress, and Urban Decay, or Back Pain, or something. That was the first thing that was released under the name The Reduction Agents. But it was essentially a a, a solo recording with a, with a few collaborators, but none of whom ended up in, in, in the band with me. Though that three-track EP didn't directly kickstart his career, having something down on tape legitimised what he was doing and got him a job in a real working band. I just played it to my friends, really. I, I've, I've, you know, I'm probably still sitting on most of them in a box somewhere. But I I was moonlighting as this kind of cub reporter for a, for a music website, and I went and interviewed... Jonathan and Heather from the Brunettes just before their album came out, and I gave him that little EP. So that was would have been towards you know the middle end of two thousand and three, and he especially liked that song "You Beautiful Militant," and also at the same time basically asked me to join the band. So if it did nothing else, it it I suppose it got me the job in in the Brunettes. Though one of his early works, You Beautiful Militant, would go on to feature on that band's next record, it really wasn't his project. So he was still stockpiling a portfolio of solo songs. There was just one thing holding him back, the confidence to go solo. You know, having accumulated a, a decent chunk of quite good songs and, 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 and I wasn't getting the opportunity to write for the brunettes. You know, Jonathan had a fairly autocratic style of leadership in the band or and, and it was just you know it was very much his thing so I, I guess I wasn't getting to 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 explore the full scope of my creativity within the within the realms of that band I couldn't actually visualize myself as a singer of a, of a, of a band at that point I think it was just a natural culmination of, of a desire to to perform my own music I r- really wasn't that confident as a, as a as a performer at the time I was only just starting to you know sing my own songs one of the people that lived in the in the flat that I would occasionally crash at uh, in Mount Albert, her name was Aidy, and she used to run uh, an acoustic afternoon at the King's Arms, and I'd go there and occasionally perform, basically almost on a on a dare to do that. Wouldn't even be as confident enough to to perform at an open mic night without getting intensely inebriated. So I mean, yeah, as I say, I was, I was writing these songs, but I wasn't necessarily mentally ready to, to to go out and form a band and perform them and start my career. But with a few acoustic afternoons under his belt and a couple of useful contacts, he dipped his toe into the water. And yeah, at some point, I I played a, a solo gig of Reduction Agent songs. Essentially, that would have been probably the beginning of two thousand and four. It was supporting a band, The Checks, who ended it was sort of a rap garage rock band around the time. Yeah, it just was a very heartening experience of playing those songs to a group of retrogressive teenagers from Takapuna, you know, probably on the cusp of being too young to be in the bar and and getting this amazing response. That gave me a lot of confidence. I think I put a band together quite quickly after that. Now knowing he was onto something, James made a few calls. The people who ended up being in the band, Joel Mulholland was a musician in Christchurch. He was the production engineer at RDU, which is the student radio station in Christchurch. And Ben Eldridge played guitar in a band, one of the bands that I liked in Christchurch at the time, called the Heavy Jones Trio. I met both of them in Christchurch, and they'd both moved to Auckland around about the same time as me and had their own stuff going on. 
And yeah, Ryan McFun, uh, who was the drummer, he uh, joined the Brunettes at the end of 2003. Ryan joined me when we went and played Meredith Festival in Australia and, and, and he was this really great drummer who loved Keith Moon and he ended up joining the, the reduction agents and I also joined the Ruby Sons, his band, as, as, as the drummer for them. All that band hopping meant that James had to get pretty versatile with the lineup pretty early. The Czechs invited me to play a gig at the Masonic Tavern in Devonport. I put together a band for that and I think it might have just been the three of us like it was kind of a, a, a bit of a period where Ben wouldn't be available, so I'd get Joel to come in and play bass instead. And then it was, you know, it kind of morphed into that thing where well, Ben plays guitar and keyboards, so I'll keep Joel and Ben and we'll make it a four piece. So that, that all kind of happened through 2004. Having lived with these songs for years now, the reduction agents was James's baby. But being self managed, he struggled to contain competing priorities within the band. Because of the way Jonathan worked in the Brunettes, which was basically total control over every sound, that's what I was modelling in terms of, you know, like I'd, I'd like that kind of control or if that was just what seemed normal to me. And then uh, quite quickly with the reduction agents, uh, I, I discovered that I wasn't able to control it for, for lots of reasons. You know, it's not healthy for a start, but also just everyone was busy and it was really hard to trap people down. So a lot of the energy behind the way the music was created was from a lot of spontaneity rather than uh, planning on my behalf. I've got enough distance now to look back on it with a sense of romance, but at the time I was more frustrated than thinking this is, a, this is the more valid creative way of dealing with things. But when they did get together, the chemistry was there to make things happen. In my memory, it was pretty quick. Maybe minus one song. I had the whole Reduction Agents album written. And so we weren't having to build up a set. I mean, the set that we performed at our second or third gig was the album. After that, I really can't remember us having many band practices. It kind of reached this fairly excellent point at a very early stage. And despite not having a release yet, they were feeling some momentum. Quite quickly, there was a buzz around the band in Auckland. It was the energy at some shows, like a, a really palpable sense of excitement generated in both directions from the band and in the audience. You know, it didn't explode in any crazy way, but it was just, you know, 100 people sh shooting up to a show and it feeling really exciting and just playing lots of gigs. I, I, I stumbled upon a diary, you know, recently and we were just, it was a period of time when you just accept every offer and there was heaps of offers coming in. So it was, it was, it had that energy around it, you know. It was also around that time that James started to develop the pseudonym and cathartic character of Lawrence Arabia, an act that would go on to define his career. I explored this kind of almost nihilistic side to it that I'm still probably unpacking on a psychological level today. Because I just remember when I first started doing those acoustic shows, there was a song that I used to play. It was called 5,000 Miles an Hour. And during that song, I would basically start screaming. And I basically surprised myself because, you know, before I did that, it was all very um, polite. And then when I had this song, it just the catharsis of getting to scream into a microphone, uh, it just like unleashed all of these demons that I, I had building up inside me somehow. And with a band behind me, that just increased heaps. She 
James has been performing under that pseudonym ever since, but at the time, James, Lawrence and the reduction agents were all one and the same. It just helped him come out of his shell. Lawrence Raby was the front person of the reduction agents. It was the mask that I used to, 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 be, to become that person that was able would you know, shred their vocal cords and, and make my fingers bleed. That was a different person that was wilder than I was in, in, in normal life. Yeah, I adopted this Lawrence Arabia persona, which, you know, I'd get up dressed in robes and I felt like, you know, I had this power, especially with this really wild band that would often get too drunk to play probably as well as they could, but it, it allowed for this very unhinged and cathartic performance. We'd finish with a song called Ribs, which I'd end up just doing a full-on you know, primal screaming and I'd be just tearing my fingers to shreds on the on the guitar strings, blood spraying on the on the guitar. God knows what pain I was trying to exercise, but yeah, it's it's, it's quite strange to think about now. <laughs> I can put some of it down to I guess the pent up frustrations of being a you know shy introvert and suddenly being granted this power of performance and in 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 the in the power of a microphone. It's like, finally, you, you have to listen to me. So many layers of that stuff, and I, I'm still unpacking it somewhat. <laughs> for a band with great pop songs, it could get pretty intense. But it was a way for James to work out who he wanted to be as a performer and work out the frustrations of managing a band. As soon as it got busy, it started to become a drag, you know, in terms of the other people's commitments. And, you know, that's when it started to develop some frustrations for me was that, you know, as soon as it developed some momentum of its own, it was instantly a problem. Difficult to get the band together for band practices and lots of back and forth around about bookings and things like that, especially at a time when it was like you didn't have a, a Facebook messenger thread or it was it was harder to communicate. And so, I, yeah, I was probably on the landline still. <laughs> So, in his downtime, he began to explore this new side of himself. The other element to it was starting to play gigs on my own as Lawrence Arabia and, you know, start to construct this other, slightly different uh, element to my work. While we were gigging and, and I, I, I was starting to record these other songs as well, and I think if the reduction agents had been in a different kind of band, I probably would have just, we just would have done them as band songs, but... Because it was so hard to get the band together in, in that way, I was, uh, you know, I just ended up making this other record that was, you know, I could control because it was just me and there was no, I didn't have to rely on someone else to turn up or not turn up or, yeah. In the reduction agents, James still saw something special, so he worked quickly to capture that moment in time and get a single out. Joel had a space at the Lab Studios in Auckland, and the first thing we did was record a version of Urban Yard. It wasn't a full band recording. It was like we, you know, we did the, did the drums separately with Ryan playing, and uh, and I did all of the other instruments. You know, I put that on BFM, and and I think it was something like number one on the BFM top ten, which was a you know a, a real rite of passage for a Auckland or an Auckland band. And 
BFM's the Auckland uh, student radio station, but you know, at the at, at the time, especially, it had a pretty large listenership. But yeah, it certainly went through a period of being probably the almost the biggest radio station in Auckland for a little while. Off the back of that success, James found a pretty unique environment for the band to knock out the rest of their set for a debut album. Just because of the nature of the band, I ended up with this idea that we would just record in the lab, but not in the actual recording studio itself. We recorded it out in the in the sort of foyer because I didn't really like the sound that you know I didn't like the sound of studio recordings at the time. I had a real snobbery around hi-fi recording. So yeah, we set up in the in the lobby and uh, recorded it on a twenty-four track tape. The one-day recording process was because of that inability to get people together. I was we're never going to be going to a residential recording studio for for three weeks to record the record. That was just never going to happen. So and I felt like that was the best way to capture the energy of the band was just to just go in and smash it out at high pace. Fitting with the energy of the band and the lo-fi nature of recording, James was also game enough to put a final polish on the record himself, a task usually left for professionals. I mastered the album myself when we released it. Because at the time I thought mastering was this stupid thing that was a waste of money that didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't know how to use the tools, but I just, you know, I, if, if it sounded acceptable to me, it was fine. And I mean, you know, to a certain degree, that's, perfectly justifiable but you know I definitely you know had minimal skill it was more hubris than than skill it was just the hubris of thinking I had really good taste and and I was just able to make things sound like I wanted them to sound and that would be fine The reduction agents named their debut the Dance Reduction Agents. With a bright orange cover, it contained even brighter indie pop hooks, and enough off-kilter to hint at the more avant-garde side of Lawrence Arabia. So how did he feel about the finished product? I was excited. I mean, I, I guess I still hadn't gotten over the the sort of miracle of hearing sound recorded and reflected back at you in a, in a favourable light. And it sounded exciting to me. It was, you know, we had it was had a lot. I mean, obviously, it had a lot of room sound because it was in this recorded in this big space. And we also had this. There was a big room next door that had a huge reverb, and we had a mic set up in that as the kind of reverb scene. So it's just this um, big sound, and it sounded interesting to me. Um, it definitely, listening back to it, has its <laughs> has its limitations. But it was exciting to me. It felt like I, you know, it had. I had succeeded in, in avoiding it sounding like a studio recording, for better or for worse. <laughs> and what about the public reaction? You know, at the time it was released, it got good press notices. It was reviewed well by, you know, all of New Zealand's top music reviewers in the, you know, in the big newspapers and in the in, in magazines. Yeah, Lil Chief Records, which is Jonathan Bree and Scott Mannion's record label, put it out. I mean, I think people were mostly fairly positive. I think I think people were just glad that they were had been recorded. And we toured it. We did a 
uh, in a low hum tour of New Zealand uh, at the time to, to you know immediately following the release. Now their audience had a chance to hear the songs. What were the album shows like? It crystallised what was already there, I suppose. I never noticed a bump, but I mean, we we did a release party at you know in two thousand and six, and and it would have been I don't know if it was a sold out show, but there would have been two hundred people there in Auckland or something. You know, that might have been the biggest show we had done. But despite positive signs and low key success, James was already moving on. Before the album even came out, I went on tour with Ockerville River in, in, in Australia and was and supported them playing some solo shows as Lawrence Arabia. The Lawrence Arabia self-titled album came out at exactly the, on the exact the same day as the Reduction Agents record, so I was already hedging my bets in that regard. And, and so I did go to Australia not that long after um, the album came out and, and did some solo shows in, in Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, but it was not. It was wasn't really feasible to get the get the reduction agents to tour at the time. Most people with two records in the bag would probably stagger the release, so not to confuse things. But not James, releasing his first album as Lawrence Arabia and the more commercially viable debut from the reduction agents on the same day. Question is why? I'd finished the record and I couldn't see any reason why not to release it. And also, to some degree, I'd. I'd, I'd checked out a little bit from the reduction agents at, at the point that the band released the record because, because of you know all of the you know, the difficulties I mentioned, the frustrations that I had with with that it, you know it wasn't feeding my need to to create very much hedging my bets at that point and just and just throwing a, a whole heap of stuff out there and, and and seeing what happened. But you know I, I I think I'd already you know to some degree moved on. I was like I'm going to be doing some sort of Lawrence Arabia thing as my is my career. Though he was hedging his bets, one of the two debuts fared better than the other. There was definitely more um, enthusiasm around the Reduction Agents record. Uh, you know, it was re- reviewed better, and, and it was, you know, it's a, it's a better record on, on a lot of levels. So it wasn't like the Reduction Agents record was this old thing that I didn't like. I mean, I knew it had the better songs, and when I would do solo sets as Lawrence Arabia, I would, I'd probably be playing at least half if not more reduction agent songs because they were great standalone pop songs that could exist even as just playing a, a guitar and I wanted to hold her But even with some success, buzz and a great debut album, it became pretty clear it was a one-time deal, as he wrote a soon-to-be signature Lawrence Arabia song. My life kind of moved on in a way that kind of left the record behind very quickly. I wrote Apple Pie Bed about, you know, in the month following the release of both those records, leaning towards the direction of what my new album was going to be. And then I moved to England and I didn't obviously take the reduction agents with me, uh, and so it became natural that I was going to form some sort of iteration of a Lawrence, a Lawrence Arabia band over there, and it became natural to promote 
the Lawrence Arabia record rather than the Reduction Agents record. And I was recording a new Lawrence Arabia record. So, um, and yeah, in a way, I, I left the, the record behind. We did, you know, we would do the odd show over the next few years. Uh, but, you know, it was, but, you know, it was, it was very occasional. Moving to some degree, it helped me put literal distance between that but it was you know it, it was the sense of creating a new phase and getting away from some of those you know frustrations that were building for me in Auckland at the time. As those frustrations felt further and further behind him songs from the dance reduction agents were given a new life by young Kiwi director Taika Waititi who featured key songs from the album in his first film Eagle vs Shark starring Flight of the Concords Jermaine Clement. I had some mutual friends with Taika Waititi at at the time and he became a fan of the album and wanted to sync some of the songs into Eagle vs Shark. It was the biggest and best bit of sync, synky thing that happened with that record. Nothing ever exploded because of that, you know, possibly because the film was a little, well, how do I put it, just didn't succeed as maybe as it could have or should have or, or it was a different film than people were expecting or something. But I mean, maybe if it had been this huge film, it could have been a different thing. But as it was, I, you know, began to notice some crossover with, uh, especially like people who are into that whole realm of Flight of the Concords and Tyker's stuff that, that started to follow my work and definitely brought me to the attention of, of those kind of people. But it was a less connected time. And so because it wasn't a huge film, you know, things didn't explode in the same way. So it was a little harder to, you know, the, the likelihood of that connection being made was just a little bit less, I think, at that time. There was no direct thing that I can, I can you know, really recall other than some slightly bigger royalty checks. Mountain top, I'm putting the finishing touches on you. Putting the ultimate rocks on you. Meanwhile, after struggling to self-manage his former bandmates, the tables turned as the responsibilities for the sound and production of the next record were all on James. The first record had been incredibly easy to record. It was just you know, a bit of flippant silliness that I was recording on after I'd finished the Reduction Agents record, essentially, with a bunch of silly, slightly stoned songs. And then I started to bring that Beatles kinks influence to the Lawrence Arabia record this time and so I took over some of that energy that you know I'd been pouring into into the reduction agents and then started slaving away on this record which I was finding found incredibly difficult because it you know it wasn't about getting four dudes into a lobby for a day to rock out it was I was responsible for everything and I was discovering lots of limitations in my skills as a, an engineer and a producer and and as a musician as as, as well it was it was actually an incredibly difficult record to make. I mean, I think I think probably most people would look back on it in, in a similar way, but I feel like I wasn't mentally prepared for a lot of the growth that I was going through and didn't deal with the little whiffs of success that I had in a very mature and measured way. It's an interesting time to look back on. That record in Lawrence Arabia would go on to be a success with a following around the world. But in the meantime, two years apart was enough time for the reduction agents to have cemented a bit of local legend. 
and some new fans back home. Towards the end of my time in, in the UK, when things were starting to get you know, slightly promising for Lawrence Arabia at the beginning of 2008, I came back to New Zealand for a, for a summer trip and we were going to play at Camp Alohum, which was a festival that was happening every year for a few years during that period. We played at this festival and they had this very euphoric experience of playing basically to all of the kids who had been too young to go and see us in pubs, you know, a few years before, but who'd loved the record and were now, you know, 18, 19 years old, just completely f- freaking out to our music, which was this really um, amazing rock star moment for all of us, I think. definitely sort of tied it up with a nice ribbon and it made everything make a bit more sense. It didn't make me think I'm going to get the reduction agents be my main thing again because I you know for, for me I'd, I'd, I'd reconcile myself with that and I had enough momentum with Lawrence Arabia that I, I felt comfortable with pursuing that. But no it was really nice to have that little bit of context and, and even though it was you know not that long after it came out it was a couple of years but it was it was cool to have that kind of immediate nostalgia feeling you know but still be young enough to appreciate it so the record may not have gone global but it was to many a lost classic and to some an inspiration i know of a few people that were um at least partially inspired by that record or my stuff to do bits and pieces and there was a band in christchurch who ended up doing a whole set of reduction agents covers i'm not sure how long that band went on for but (laughs) To, I mean, those people are in their 30s now and it's it doesn't feel like that. But there definitely was a few years, especially, you know, after that Camp Hum experience of, of feeling a little bit of warmth and, and, and a bit of an ego boost slash trip about that whole aspect of things, which is pretty sweet. But, I mean, you know, they're all ancient now too. So since 2006, when James changed direction, what became of the rest of the reduction agents? Joel is still in exactly the same room in the lab that he was 15 years ago. He's a brilliant musician who plays in seemingly zillions of bands and then quits them because he can't actually give them enough time and produces a lot of music. Ben moved to Christchurch uh, and he teaches guitar. He, he did a jazz degree and he just he's just like a just a full-on working guitarist and um, Ryan is a pizza chef in Oslo and he still has the Ruby Suns which seems to be semi on ice at the moment but he did release a record a couple of years ago and he sometimes plays with Lawrence Arabia when I go to Europe which is not feasible at the moment but you know it was feasible last year so he's he the last few times I've been to Europe he's been in my band. Though the band had well and truly moved on just 10 years after its release, the dance reduction agents still had enough of a legend at home to warrant a remaster, vinyl reissue, and a tribute album in New Zealand. Yeah, I was involved in the, you know, the, the little bit of remastering that was done to it and, you know, compiling some old photos for the for the artwork and stuff like that. And also just uh, 
I, I didn't curate my own covers album, but I was sort of lightly consulting on the side with, with Jonathan from Little Chief, who was, who was, who was coordinating that. It was nice to at least get it on 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 a, on a record, and, and I didn't bother to go into the mixes in any way. And there was also some limitations with that because I had a situation where some of the I didn't back up a hard drive and and had a computer stolen when I was on tour with the Brunettes and lost. You know, so I ended up only with mix downs of four of the songs, um, and I could never reconstruct those. So I just ended up using those original mix downs on the, on the record, and then the other ones which I finished afterwards, I um. Yeah, I didn't have the heart to sort of go in and start really trying to make some any sense of that crazy mix. It was a huge can of worms. I mean, and and it would have been difficult because it's not recorded in a proper. It's recorded in the lobby of a recording studio, so it's. Uh, I mean, just chasing my tail in terms of trying to construct a, a more cohesive drum sound or things like that. I'm comfortable with the you know the overall effect of it, even if there's some you know little details that I would you know change now. A number of albums, singles and side projects later, Lawrence Arabia gave James the path to meaningful success that the reduction agents kind of couldn't. Control issues and shifting lineups aside, the reduction agents were lightning in a bottle, a coming of age as James discovered who he wanted to be. Now living in Auckland, New Zealand with a young family, he's on the search for something else. I'm on a self-imposed sabbatical this year. I'm not doing a heap of Lawrence Arabia stuff. I'm actually turning down opportunities unless they're so lucrative that I can't ignore them. I'm just waiting for the next bit of inspiration. I've been you know, trying to explore different styles of music and writing the old song. I'm just trying to take the foot off the accelerator a little bit this year and, and focus on my family and not be so career obsessed, you know, at least until I start feeling that feeling again. discovered like hopefully most people would that you should gravitate towards things that make you happy rather than things that make you miserable music has a bit of an uneven strike rate with the happiness and misery thing so i am um, just you know just being careful with that i'm just making sure i say yes to the happy things and and just avoid the things i'm going to end up being pissed off about you've been listening to highlighter records the reduction agents one and only album and tribute record are on all major streaming services, so go and check them out. Then, if that's up your alley, dig deeper into James's alter ego, Lawrence Arabia. Keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of Highlighter, and make sure to subscribe, review, share, or whatever it is you're into. <laughs>